Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's turn to Psalm 10 for our Old Testament scripture lesson. Psalm 10. psalm where the psalmist is grieving that the wicked prosper and is crying out to God that he would rescue them. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In pride, the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. As for all his adversaries, he snorts at them. He says to himself, I will not be moved. Throughout all generations, I will not be in adversity. His mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. He sits in the lurking places of the villages and the hiding places he kills the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. He lurks in a hiding place as a lion in his lair. He lurks to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted when he draws him into his net. He crouches. He bows down. And the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Rise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted. Why has the wicked spurned God? He has said to himself, you will not require it. You have seen it, for you have beheld mischief and vexation to take it into your hand. The unfortunate commits himself to you. You have been the helper of the orphan. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Set out his wickedness until you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. Nations have perished from his land. O Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their hearts. You will incline your ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. This is the word of the Lord. And now back to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17 is our gospel lesson. Says the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab. Minadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, 
who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, and Ammon the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud, and Abihud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad. Eliad was the father of Eliezer, Eliezer the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. And now our epistle reading from Romans chapter 10. The Apostle Paul is still focused on the, his, his brethren according to the flesh, his kinsmen. Right? He's focused on the Jewish nation and what, uh, what will become of them and what has happened to them. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they do not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? 
So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed, they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the earth. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. This is the word of the Lord. Let's now bring to the Lord his tithe and our offerings. Let's turn to John chapter 1, verse 29 through 34, and let's stand for the reading of God's word. John chapter 1, verse 29. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. The next day, he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I've seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. 
This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us minds that are are loosed from our distractions and set upon your word, that we would be fed again and be built up by your Holy Spirit. Bless every one of our thoughts and meditations. May they be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. So intimidation is often used by those in power to silence dissent, right? Intimidation is one way that we try to silence any dissent. One of the ways we have seen this used recently uh, is the case of the IRS going after conservative organizations during President Obama's administration. Remember that? Organizations that had anything to do with the conservative Tea Party movement were especially singled out and they lost, in some cases, their tax-exempt status. Um, That technique is as old as mankind. Intimidation is just part of what we, uh, it is what we saw in our passage last time, the intimidation that came on the part of this deputation from the Sanhedrin, from the Pharisees. And, and so they wanted to know what John the Baptist was up to, so they sent a group of priests and Levites to question him. And it may have been their intent to send him an intimidating message. Right? From what we learn later about the Pharisees, the Pharisees were not great guys. They may have had power, they may have been in charge, they may have known the scriptures, but they loved the spotlight. We also learn that they loved money. We also learn in the scriptures that they made an alliance with their enemies, the Herodians, because they hated Jesus so much. They would even get together with their enemies. And they sought to put Jesus to death. Their purpose was likely, right, knowing their character and as it's played out in the rest of the gospel, their purpose here was probably to intimidate John the Baptist into silence. And as we learned about John, John is hard to silence. He's very hard to silence. Last time we saw that he pointed away from himself, right, and, he, and, he, and toward the one who came after him, the thong of whose sandal he was not worthy to untie. And then we see in our passage that John is certainly not intimidated. Look at those first words of verse 29. The next day. The next day. Right? The very next day, he has the opportunity now to testify to the Messiah who is among them. And he's not silent. He's not intimidated by this deputation from the Sanhedrin. Eventually, his unwillingness to be silent would lead to his martyrdom. He would die for his words. So he, brothers and sisters, had counted the cost of following Jesus Christ. He loved the truth, and no matter the cost, he would proclaim it. That's That's what I think of when I think of John the Baptist. He would proclaim the truth. 
So the very next day after this disputa- or deputation from, from the leaders of Israel, John the Baptist has the faith to announce the very core, the very essence, the mission statement, if we want to uh, put it that way, of the Messiah. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now think about that. Stop thinking about other things and being distracted by your children. Think about that statement. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why does John call Jesus the Lamb of God? Because he knows the story of Abraham and Isaac, right? Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. So John the Baptist knows about Abraham and Isaac. Knows that God will do what? He will provide a substitute. And he has done so through this Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, that substitute. Isaac should have died. Instead, the ram dies in his place. And what is that? That's the Lord's provision. And so now now John is making allusion to that, and he's saying that, look, God has provided a substitute. It should be you, but it's going to be him. Why, again, does John call Jesus the Lamb of God? John knows the scriptures, and he knows that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. All those sacrifices that are described in the book of Leviticus point toward this truth. And that's why Leviticus should never be a boring book for you. Because it's all about Jesus. It's all about substitutes and sacrifice and the sin that you lay upon the animal and then the animal carries them away for you. It's all about Jesus. So all those sacrifices described in the book of Leviticus point toward this truth. But there was something deficient in all of those sacrifices that had been made by the Jews down through the ages. There was something deficient in them that would not be in Jesus' sacrifice. They were shadows that just pointed to the reality. And Jesus was the perfect Lamb of God whose sacrifice really paid for our sins. Hebrews 10 says this, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time 
the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Did you hear that? All those, all those sacrifices time and time again done by the priests could never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. By one offering, he perfects those who are being sanctified, right? Whereas all those Old Testament, Old Testament sacrifices could never take away sins. So by calling Jesus the Lamb of God, John is sweeping up all those Old Testament sacrifices and, and concluding them in Jesus Christ. Also, why does John call John the Baptist call Jesus the Lamb of God? The minds of the Jews would immediately have turned to the Passover when they heard John's testimony concerning this Lamb of God, right? As a perpetual statutes, the Jews were to remember their rescue from Egypt and their deliverance from the destroying angel. They were to constantly be coming back to that and remembering that sacrifice, the blood. Here's what it says in Exodus 12. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families and slay the Passover lamb. You shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood that is in the basin on the lintel and on the two doorposts. And none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians and when he sees the blood... On the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. And you shall serve this, you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. When you enter the land which the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall observe this right. And when your children say to you, what does this right mean to you? You shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but spared our homes. And the people bowed low and worshipped. So how is Jesus the Passover lamb? It is only by his shed blood covering us that we escape from from the destroying angel, that we escape from the judgment of God. This is why in First. Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul says to Christians, to us, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened, for Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. Christ our Passover. The original Passover lamb's blood kept them safe that terrifying evening when the destroyer took the lives of the Egyptians sons and livestock the blood of jesus keeps believers safe when that terrifying last day comes and jesus treads the wine press of the fierce wrath of god the almighty the very same jesus that lamb of god who is slain treading in the wine press of the almighty the wrath, the wrath of God, the Almighty.
The very Lamb of God who bled to cover the sins of his people will come to judge those who refused his blood, who aren't covered in his blood, who don't have that blood spread upon the lintel, who mocked his blood, who covered themselves with anything else other than the blood of Jesus Christ. Right? That's, what, that's what people do. That's why people, that's why people um, get passionate about something. They're trying to cover their sins. Right? They're trying to put meaning into their lives. They're trying, to, they're trying to give significance, but they're also trying to overcome their sins. And yet there's only one thing that leads to the forgiveness of sins, and that's the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It is the only thing sufficient. And so everybody else, everybody tries to cover themselves with something. And there's only one thing that truly covers, and that's his blood. So when John the Baptist announces, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he is announcing that there is only one way to make it through this coming judgment, believing Jesus is the sacrificial lamb, believing Jesus is the only paschal lamb. But perhaps you don't believe there's a coming judgment. I mean, perhaps that's all very theoretical. You, you believe the scriptures and you, you like, you know, you read about judgment and, and you gloss over it, but you don't realize the fact that every single soul, every man, woman, child who dies faces judgment. Immediately upon your death, you face judgment. It's appointed unto man once to die, then Judgment. Right? And, and how can that not pervade our thoughts? Right? How can we not be constantly thinking about that? How can that not stay our temptations at, at a certain point? Right? How can that not, not uh, distract our thoughts about this world? How can, how can it not? How can, we, how can we just so nonchalantly never think about what happens and, and will happen to every man, woman, or child who ever lived. Any, every soul will stand before God and be judged. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is John announcing that there is one way, there is one hiding place for any man, woman, child. Notice that John uses the singular word sin of the world rather than sins of the world. He uses the word sin in the singular number for any kind of iniquity, right? Any kind of iniquity, sin, sin. It could be this kind of sin, that kind of sin, but sin. As if he said that every kind of unrighteousness which alienates from God is taken away by Christ. In other words, whoso whatsoever a man has done to offend God, Jesus' blood can cleanse from that sin. Whatsoever a man has done, the blood of Christ can cleanse him. I mean, that is good news because our sins are, we have a long, long history of sins, don't we? We have a long, long history of, of terrible sins of unbelief, terrible 
lusts, right? Terrible uh, breaking of vows that we've made, stealing, lying. I mean, think, think of your thoughts, the blasphemous thoughts that go through your minds. Just a long, long, long list of heinous sins. And we don't, we, don't have to get, we don't have to talk about notorious sins, sins like uh, of mass murderers, right? A mass murderer's weight of sin is generally the same as ours, right? We've all committed murders. We have all committed murders. And Jesus' blood can cleanse from those sins. Also, notice that it is the sin of the world. By saying this, he means to show that Jesus was sent to more than just the Jews. Right? He was sent to the entire human race. He was sent to the Gentiles as well. We just read that in, 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 John, or in Romans chapter 10. In Romans chapter 11, Paul goes on and talks about how God is making, making the Jews jealous by applying the blood of Christ to the Gentiles. I mean, that's a radical statement. But think about this. The blood of the Paschal Lamb, Jesus atones for any sin and any people. There's a potency to, the, to Christ's blood that is found there. His blood is sufficient for all mankind, but efficient only for those who believe. Nothing else pays the penalty or allows the judgment of God to pass by. Think of the grace of God in his provision of this Lamb of God. We only need one way of atonement. The Lamb of God is that one way without any imperfection. In fact, that Lamb was slain, get this, before the very foundation of the world. He was slain before the foundation of the earth. When the Father and the Son were, were covenanted together to, to save his elect, right? Those whose names are written in the book of life, that's when the, the Lamb was slain. I mean, when you woke up this morning, did you have did you have thoughts of Jesus? Did you have thoughts of Jesus? Did you have little thoughts of Jesus even? Were you more concerned about what was for breakfast than you were about the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world? I know it's cheap of pastors to guilt trip you like this, but I'm guilt tripping myself, right? What did I get up and think about? I thought about my sore back and a piece of toast with raspberry jam on it. And I did not pray, and I did not set my mind to the task of the day. I didn't, I didn't give thanks to him for having survived another night in sleep. I just didn't feast on who he is. You know, it's, it's sad that we feast more on what is present before us than upon these eternal truths. Before the Milky Way began to spin in its place in this immense universe, the Lamb of God was slain. 
before the mountains or the hills existed, the Lamb of God was at work for you. He was working for you before, before there were stars in the sky. Before time itself, God the Son was thinking of you and he was laying down his life for you. That's a sweet meditation, isn't it? That is much more nourishing than pancakes and coffee. When you are having a miserable day and you can't get your mind off of this world and it's a veil of tears, go back to this place and think about the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. Slain in time 2,000 years ago to atone for your sin. Each and every despicable one of your sins. Slain so that you might be freed from the power of sin. Slain so that you might live in newness of life. And so let's get some perspective, brothers and sisters. Let's get some perspective. That is true food to meditate on these things. But we so often just think about food, food. Feed your souls. Feed your souls. Just think about the Lamb of God. Think about what it means that he's called us. Think about when he was slain for you. Think about the power of the Lamb of God. Ryle writes, Let us serve Jesus faithfully as our master. Let us obey him loyally as our king. Let us study his teaching as our prophet. Let us walk diligently after him as our example. Let us look anxiously for him as our coming redeemer of body as well as soul. But above all, let us prize him as our sacrifice and rest our whole weight on his death as an atonement for sin. Let his blood be more precious in our eyes every year we live. Whatever else we glory in about Christ, let us glory above all things in his cross. This is the cornerstone. This is the citadel. This is the root of true Christian theology. We know nothing rightly about Christ until we see him with John the Baptist's eyes and can rejoice in him as the lamb that was slain. The lamb that was slain. Dead. There is so much talk these days about Jesus as king. Everywhere I turn, my friends, my post-millennial friends, my theonomic friends, my friends of certain, um, certain theological persuasions are talking about Jesus as king. They pound that drum. Jesus is king, 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 king. They pound it and pound it and pound it and pound it. Right? They assert his kingship everywhere, but they particularly assert his kingship in their apologetic. Right? They desire to see people bow their knees to the king through the institutions and constitutions of this world and her governments. But let us not forget that he is not solely a conquering king. He's a lamb slain. He's a weak, little, helpless lamb slain. It used to be that this was the basis for apologetics. 
right? Jesus being a slain lamb for the sins of the world. The predicament of personal sin was the linchpin of the efforts of pastors and missionaries and churches. Which is all to say, be careful about making one attribute of Jesus dominate all the others. One argument I'd make to put more emphasis, if I have to make an argument, on putting more emphasis on the sacrificial work of Christ over his kingship is that his kingship is defined in relation to other kings of the earth. Hence, he is called the king of kings, right, and the lord of lords. Whereas his sacrifice as the lamb of God was before the foundations of the earth. In the time when the triune God was all and the father and the son existed in covenantal love. There is something prior in Jesus than his kingship, and that is his being a sacrifice. Being a sacrifice. The anger of of some apologists can be explained because of the overemphasis they place on Jesus' kingship. Strange that apologists for the faith would be angry. But presuppositionalists can get really angry. And I consider myself a presuppositionalist, so... But they can get really angry. They demand the world bow the knee to Jesus, approaching Jesus as an angry potentate. What might be more appropriate for a sin-sick, weary, dying world is the message of the cross. The love of a dying lamb, the kindness of a God who had them in mind before the world's foundation. If we are going to err in one direction, you know, may it be in the direction of overemphasizing Jesus as a lamb slain and away from Jesus as the lawgiver. But best, right, best would to be remember both and avoid being monolithic in our approach to everything. If we take one attribute of God and make it the filter through which we pass all of Scripture, you end up with a distorted view of Jesus. You must take all of his attributes. Ryle backs me up on this. He says Christ is a savior. He did not come on earth to be a conqueror. He did not come on earth to be a philosopher or a mere teacher of morality. He came to save sinners. You know, I think it's high time that we focus on this. What characterizes modern man more than anything else right now is that he has lost his moral sensibility. He does not think he is a sinner, and he does not think there is such a thing even as sin. This is what postmodernism has done in its quest to relativize everything. There is no objective truth. But to say Jesus is the savior of sinners is to make an objective statement about mankind. He has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that is the only problem. That is the fundamental truth that we need to pound home. Now, there is something else I'd like to take up from our passage here. John the Baptist testifies about Jesus, but then says in verse 31, I did not recognize him. I did not recognize him. 
And then, and then he goes to, on to speak about Jesus' baptism when the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus, which we read uh, more t- details about that in the other Gospels. What does he mean when he says he did not, re- did not recognize or did not know him? How did John the Baptist not recognize Jesus? In what way did he not recognize him? Well, Chrysostom, the old preacher, says this, that John is speaking of former times and not of the times near to his baptism. In other words, during those years before his public ministry, John was not aware of exactly who Jesus was. Augustine, that old preacher, said it means this, I had not known till that day that Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit, although I had long known him personally and had recognized him as the Christ of God, but when he came to be baptized, it was also revealed to me that he would confer on men the great gift of the Holy Spirit. So in other words, he's saying, I knew him personally, right? Knew him before this, but I didn't know he was going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And once the Spirit came down and descended on him, then I recognized what he was about. Beza, that old preacher, said it meant this, I had not known Jesus that John is saying, I had not known Jesus by sight until the day when he came to be baptized. I knew that he had been born of the Virgin Mary, but was not personally acquainted with him, having been myself brought up in the desert. Right? He's like, we've been you know, brought up separately. I've been brought up in the desert. I'm, I'm just a poor boy from, you know, out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, then Poole, that old preacher, says it means this. I knew him not perfectly and distinctly, though I had an impression when I first saw him coming to be baptized that he was one far greater than myself. And under that impression, demurred demurred to baptizing him. After his baptism, baptism, I saw clearly who he was. Kistemacher says the Baptist means to say, I did not know him any more than you did. Well, okay, what are we to make of that? So I think it's safe to say that John the Baptist is saying that he did not, he did not fully know exactly who Jesus was until he saw that spirit descending out of heaven from the Father and resting on the Son as John was doing the bapti- his baptism. Right? Chrysostom makes the point that this lack of knowledge indicates that the miracles... Right? There, there's, there are apocryphal books, there are Gnostic books that make a big deal about Jesus doing miracles when he was a kid, right? none of which we believe are inspired scriptures at all. But Chrysostom makes, makes the point combining John's lack of knowledge, which if Jesus had been doing these miracles as a kid, John would have had more knowledge of who he was. So combining the two, Chrysostom is like, yeah, it's, it's pretty remarkable that Jesus didn't do anything for 30 years. He didn't do miracles. He did some teaching, we know that. He did some righteous living, we know that, but he did not perform miracles. Everybody would have known about him at that point. And even then, when he did miracles during his ministry, he's like, don't tell anybody about it. And the reason he does that is because it's going to make it hard for him to do any more. Because the people are going to flock to him. And so all of this to say that after the birth of Jesus Christ, the first 30 years of Jesus' life were somewhat unremarkable. 
Even his own immediate family had questions about Jesus. In the Gospel of Mark, we have some indication of what his family thought of him. Mark 3.20, And he came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. And when his own people, and literally there that means his kinsmen, heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, He has lost his senses. His family says he's lost his senses. They misunderstood him and what Jesus was about, which was his father's business. Thinking of John the Baptist, it would have been confusing for him to have heard about his calling from his parents, having heard about Jesus' birth, which had its extraordinary elements, then lived through 30 years of unremarkable Jesus. I mean, think about what that would do to you. So it was not until God the Father testified to Jesus' significance at his baptism when that Holy Spirit came down upon him that that things crystallized for John the Baptist. Things crystallized at that point. Which, Which leads me to this point. It's not until the Holy Spirit works in our hearts that our thoughts about Jesus crystallize either. It is not until the Holy Spirit works in our hearts that our thoughts will crystallize, will become clear. We can know him in so many ways before the Holy Spirit works. We can know him in so many ways as an ancient historical figure, as a sayer of cosmic truths, as a guru, but it is not until the Holy Spirit works in in us that we know him as we ought. The Apostle Paul testifies to this necessary work of the Spirit. He says in 1 Corinthians 2, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And then listen to this, yet we do not speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of the sages understood, for if they had understood, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts and spiritual words. Indeed, this, that is precisely what John goes on to say in our passage. God said to him, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, 
This is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And so it is Christ alone in any and every age of mankind who gives the Holy Spirit to those who believe in him. It is Christ alone that gives the new birth, that regeneration by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Many ministers may, like John, baptize with water. But it is only Christ who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Water baptism is a wonderful sign and seal, but the baptism of the Holy Spirit, by which we are birthed again, is our only hope for salvation. That baptism belongs to God alone. As As we thought about a few sermons ago, John writes about those who are saved But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Those who were born of God. That birthing process belongs to God alone. No matter what a sacramentalist might tell you. Man may strive to improve himself by, through his physical body. He may strive with his mind to think lofty thoughts. He may live to do good works. He may keep himself from some of the more heinous sins that others have committed. He may stimulate his body and his mind. He may look outward through telescopes and he may look uh, downward through microscopes. He may read the great masterpieces of literature. He may seek authentic experiences as he travels around the world and enjoys the the diverse cultures. He may dedicate his life to elevating mankind through education, but none of that leads to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And a true knowledge of Jesus Christ is the only way to know the one true living God. And to know that God is to know your absolute need of salvation. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. We become alienated from God and hostile in mind toward him. And it is only by the Holy Spirit's work that the hard heart is softened and the mind and the affections and will become something they were not by nature. It is only the Holy Spirit, that we understand Jesus to be more than the Son of Mary, that we understand him to be the Son of God. So are you baptized by the Holy Spirit? Do you just know things about Jesus? Or do you know Jesus? Are you baptized by the Holy Spirit? Do you have an insatiable desire to know more and more about him? Do you hunger to know him? Ryle says, and I'll close with this, thousands are content with a head knowledge of the Lamb of God or have never sought him by faith that their own sins may be actually taken away. Let us take heed that we ourselves have new hearts and believe to the saving of our souls. Jesus is the Lamb of God who was slain for the sin of the world. Believe it. Trust him. 
pray that God gives you his Holy Spirit so that you may know these things.